Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. I'm your host, Gabby. With me today is Doug. And today Hello. we have a very special guest, Dr. Valdan Brown, who is co-creator of our favorite brain training tool here at SOT.net, Neuroptimal. Dr. Val Brown is an international recognized trainer of neurofeedback trainers who has taught and consulted widely on personal and organizational transformation. With a PhD in clinical psychology and a background in mathematics, physics, computer programming, philosophy, yoga, meditation, and martial arts, Dr. Brown brings the presence and precision to his work. Developer of the five-phase module and co-creator with his wife, Dr. Sue Brown, of the period three approach to clinical neurofeedback, Dr. Brown has realized his vision of a truly comprehensive training system in Neurooptimal. His vision in bringing Neurooptimal to the world is to make personal transformation effortless and available to all. Welcome to our show, Dr. Val. We're so happy to have you here today. Well, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I uh, enjoy these kinds of uh, interviews and and uh, the ability to respond to the kinds of questions and uh, um, items that you all want to discuss, particularly because you are so involved in the work with Neuroptimal. Yes, mm -hmm. we are. Uh, that's what I wanted to tell the listeners. I think we estimated the other day that some 150 of us are doing Neuroptimal since last January. And mm -hmm. we are very, very impressed because we have tried a lot of things. I will not say pretty much everything out there, but yeah, we try to, you know, we are very open-minded. We do our work thoroughly, and uh, we have had so many good results with Neurooptimal that, yeah, that we should uh, definitely discuss this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it's, it's working so well for you because uh, the core mission for Zengar Institute and myself and my wife is relieving suffering. And the more widely this is available, the more that mission can go forward. So it's, uh, it's a great honor to know that it's having that kind of effect for you. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> well, maybe before... Um talking more about your background and what inspired you to create Neurooptimal, maybe we should hear a little description of what is exactly neurofeedback, you know? <laughs> well, there, there are broadly two differing approaches to neurofeedback. Essentially, neurofeedback involves monitoring the electrical activity of the brain on the scalp and then processing it in some computer program in order to provide real-time feedback to the connected individual, the, the individual who uh, has the sensors on their, on their scalp and on ears or wherever. Um, and the process uh, falls into those, these two differing approaches. There's linear neurofeedback, which is probably what most people get a first introduction to. Uh, linear neurofeedback is based very heavily on assessment and diagnosis and choosing a particular protocol or approach with a limited number of training targets in order to achieve some specific outcome of correcting what 
the assessments believe shows to be uh, incorrect or inadequate functioning or bring out more of something that is um, not functioning at a high enough level. Um, that was sort of the original approach. But what we do uh, with our dynamical neurofeedback is totally different. It's, it's diagnostically agnostic, as I like to say. Uh, it, because what it does is dynamically adjust moment to moment um, with what response the individual is having in terms of the electrical activity in their brain to the process of training right then and there. So it's responding to the response of that brain as it's as that brain is responding to the feedback process. So it really doesn't make sense to try to take a static snapshot or picture or assessment of where somebody starts because the brain is always changing. Uh, it, it really makes no sense even to talk about brain states because the brain is never in a unitary singular state. It's always in a, a whirling dance of processes that interact. It's a very complex, nonlinear, self-organizing system. Mm. In fact, probably the most complex that, <laughs> that's known. So... Yeah. Would it be fair to say that the way that linear neurofeedback is conducted is like, um, in a sense, backwards, like it could be considered to have an approach of like a flat earth instead of a spherical earth? <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Um, I, that's how I would say it. Um, the, the challenge is that linear neurofeedback is based on a very false premise, which is that it's important to train specific sensor sites on the surface of the skull in order to directly train or influence the region or portion of the brain that is essentially below where the sensor is placed, the active sensor. Mm -hmm. And the reason that, has, that approach has arisen, and the reason, I think, for its popularity, if you will, um, is that there's still a belief that the brain is best understood as a collection of discrete parts that talk to one another. Mm. And it's very clear that that's not the most useful way to think about it. Um, the work that I've done really follows in the pioneering efforts of Dr. Carl Pribram, who was um, a neuropsychiatrist and uh, he developed in the late 60s and into the 70s the holonomic theory of the brain and of memory, perception, and consciousness. Um, he knew that what was going on in perception and memory had to be what physicists would refer to as interference phenomena. It was not site-specific retrieval of stored patterns or stored information. And actually, it was much more like a holographic representation in which any one portion can reproduce the entire image or the entire event or the entire memory in that case. Uh, when he coupled what he was working on with a very specific mathematics, the mathematics of holography, mm -hmm. 
he was able to exactly understand what was going on. And essentially, that's what we're doing in the software. It's mm. using mathematics of holography in a dynamical fashion to model that process in the central nervous system. Because the, the truth is the central nervous system is, is vastly interconnected. Um, it's been estimated that at the present time, the entire World Wide Web has a, has a close affinity with the brain organization of a two or three year old. Huh. Huh. And if you think about what that means, the idea that somehow you're dealing mostly with axonal transmission or dendritic processes in the central nervous system itself just doesn't make sense. That's like right. pretending that where the CPU is located in your computer makes a difference as to whether it can connect and use the internet. Mm -hmm. Huh. So, for example, uh, if I understand correctly, like um, neuroanatomy or neuroscience tell us like the retina, you know, the back of the, uh, of the eye, of the eyeball, it's, it works like a yes. classical camera, you know, so the lens, you know, focuses <laughs> on a scene and we have like a two-dimensional right. image, but this Dr. Mm -hmm. Carl Prebrim, you know, it's like saying, no, it's not exactly like that. You know, it's more like a, another process that makes us really produce like a three-dimensional three holographic image. Is exactly. That yeah, that's exactly right. The, the, the metaphor of uh, the eye being a camera is useful in some contexts. Uh, for instance, um, I just had last year the the lenses in both of my eyes replaced with oh. artificial lenses mm -hmm. and from, from that perspective when you're going in you know structurally to the actual physical structures and doing surgery or something like that well yes then you can say okay we can take the lens out and replace it that part can get replaced and that makes perfect sense but as you start looking at the retina it's Self and how the retina itself is organized, and how that is organized in terms of the the optic nerve and and all of that, that image falls completely flat. Mm. It it does not fit the observed data. Uh, some of that work uh, was done by Friedman. Uh, more recently, that would have been in the 90s, something like that, maybe a little bit later, and it's very clear that that whole organizational idea of it being just a camera does not fit the reality. So it's it's very interesting to see how these ideas from Pribram that really kind of started developing in his original work even with Lashley, who was a very early uh, neurologist. In fact, Carl Pribram is the one who developed or coined the term neuropsychology. Hmm. And it's 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 in Interesting, most don't know that kind of history, let alone the work of someone who, in the 70s, really had it nailed. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I, uh, I had the great fortune when I was younger uh, to not only know those mathematics, this was back in high school, but then when I went to college at Georgetown University, I was able to hear Dr. Pribram at that time as he had uh -huh. articulated this whole approach and knowing those mathematics I had I had a discussion with him at the end of his presentation now the fun 
funny part about that is about 25 years later, uh, I was presenting at a neurofeedback conference about the work that I was doing to develop what's become neurooptimal, and and Dr. Pribram was there. Um, and during one of the breaks at the conference, he came over to me and he said, uh, "You know what you're doing has really summed up the last 25 years of my professional life." Wow. And, and I said, "Well, thank you very much. Uh, you you probably don't remember this, but I heard you at Georgetown." And he looked at me, tilted his head, and he said, were you that long-haired kid in the back of the room asking me about the mathematics? And I said, yeah, that was me. And he and I uh, struck up a you know, collegial relationship, and for the next several years, we did joint presentations because wow. he really did understand what I was doing, what my wife and I were developing, and was a, a huge proponent of it. So we had a lot of fun together. He was a, a very interesting, uh, interesting guy with just amazing depth of knowledge. And and part of what made it so much fun for me was as a neuropsychiatrist, what he was really interested in was what he used to call the go of it. And by that he meant what was actually happening in the tissue. How was that occur? How were these things occurring? You know, like what was involved in in this area of the brain and what was involved in in this kind of cooperative task amongst all the all the brain, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I'm I'm really glad you're interested in that stuff because I am totally uninterested in that. (laughs) I, 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 you know, I want to develop a system that can essentially use that whatever's going on but can ignore all the specificity because I see what I'm doing is much more like software and what you're doing is the computer hardware. Right. So it's a great, it's a great pair. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So it sounds kind of like then that these linear neurofeedback systems are kind of working on an old model, like an old model of the brain. Oh, very definitely. Very definitely. And an old model of digital signal processing. Hmm. Um, it, if you, if you think about it, the idea that we have brain waves does not really make sense because minimally they're not waves. Minimally, if you do the, the extraction for features, you'll find out that the signals are actually mathematically phasors. Uh-huh. Now you may never have heard of that except in the context of, of Star Trek, where it's a phaser, <laughs> not a phasor. Right. But uh, if if you've ever opened a bottle of wine, you know what a corkscrew looks like. Mm-hmm. And basically, a phasor is a kind of corkscrew. Now, if you if you look at that corkscrew that you're going to use to open your bottle of wine, and you turn it sideways, so you look not along it, but you look directly at it from 90 degrees off, Mm. it looks like a wave because you take Mm. the spherical nature of it away. Uh That's just how you look at it. So part of the reason for the illusion that there are waves is because Hans Berger, in his work, realized that there was electrical activity. It was making a, a, a needle twitch. So he thought, oh, well, let me replace the with a pen, and I'll draw a piece of paper under it, and then I can see what it's actually 
writing. Well, when you, you when you reduce a four dimensional object down to two dimensions, essentially, guess what? It's going to look like it's a wave, but it's not right. really. That's fascinating. So, all of the approaches that are linear or oriented that way essentially think that they're extracting sinusoids or simple sine waves or complex combinations of them. But the one thing that's absolutely true about human EEG, it is not a sinusoid or a collection of them. That's just a way of analyzing the flow of the electricity. When you record on the surface of the scalp, what you get are voltage changes, nothing more. The rest is how you do the accounting or the, the mathematics of that. And if you think it's sine waves, then you have a lot of problems with things in your environment that are massively powerful sine waves, like line noise. You mm. know, and where, where you guys are, it's, it's 50 hertz, 220 or 240, depending. Mm -hmm. Here, uh, where I am, it's 60 hertz. Well, 50 times a second where you are, 60 times a second where I am, there is a pretty pretty close to perfect sine wave being produced. Human mm. EEG isn't like that at all. It's an intrinsically chaotic system. So if you use the right mathematics, you can ignore the simple sine waves. Mm. And that's part of what we do with Neuroptimal. That is fascinating because... It it blew me away, uh, and, and I was actually going to ask you precisely what you just responded because I read <laughs> the, work, <laughs> the work of an anesthesiologist. He wrote a book, or a yes. couple of them, a, a book called Consciousness, Anatomy of the Soul. And, okay. and he was saying that, yeah, like we have this idea that since we see brain waves in a graph, that we, we think that that's their that's all of it, you know, but they make right. like uh, some graphs that can model a complexity in brain waves that implied like three dimensional, four dimensional. They're, they have fractals, you know, when people were coming okay. off from anesthesia, they have mo right. graphs that look like fractals, you know, it's like, wow. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting to see how that process has occurred. And, and part of it is because, you know, most, most of the people in the field of neurofeedback do not have the comprehensive background that I have. And mm -hmm. so they may be neuropsychologists, for instance, but they don't really understand signal processing. Or they may understand signal processing because they're a software engineer, but they don't understand anything about neuropsychology. So when the early developer of systems approached software engineers and said, well, we want to we filter out this range of activity because that's what we're interested in. They went, oh, yeah, we know how to do that, and just pulled very simple filtering techniques off the shelf, which were nonlinear in their response, which sounds like it should be good, but actually that means they go out of phase with themselves regularly. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was very easy then to create side effects with that mm. kind of equipment. It's, it's sort of like the steering in your car would suddenly switch which way was left and right and you had no way of knowing until you started to turn the car. Huh. Huh. 
Yeah, I tried linear neurofeedback, and yeah. uh, I I had very strong like what I call boomerang effect. Like uh, after uh. A, an expansion phase, I will get like I will crawl in a little corner in my room, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, now that having been said, I mean, many people find benefit from linear neurofeedback. You mm. know, it's just it requires an enormous amount of, of expertise and skill and knowledge uh, and facility with the particular equipment in order to have a, a good response, in order to um, use it effectively. But our system is organized totally differently because it's not trying to push or pull the brain towards anything or away from anything in particular. It's basically just mirroring what the brain just did. And that's sufficient for the brain to extract that information and then essentially choose what it wants to do. It's hmm. very similar to the way that we all learned how to walk. Nobody taught us how to walk. Mm -hmm. We experimented and our central nervous system and the neuromuscular insertions and, and all of that learned to integrate. Uh, in fact, it's kind of fun if you watch children as they start learn to walk and see how they experiment, if you will. My, uh, my eldest daughter, uh, when she was learning to walk, the thing she loved to do in the beginning was she would stand up. You know, we had a big, thick carpet in the, in the uh, living room in the house we lived in in that time. And she would stand up and then pick up her feet and fall on her, on her bottom. And then she would <laughs> stand up again, pick up her feet and fall on her bottom. And she would do that for 10, 15 minutes, just having fun and laughing, giggling. And, you know, she was, she was playing. And in that play, learned how to really balance herself and how to then transition. I, I couldn't teach her that. Nobody could. Right. That she had to discover herself. And it's that kind of a process that we base neuroptimal in because it's all in there. We don't have to tell the brain what we think it should or shouldn't do. It, it's wonderfully designed to detect difference and minimize its discomfort. So as we show it what it's doing moment to moment, it goes, oh, okay, I can let go of that now. I don't have to worry like that or whatever. So it's, it's a much more um, straightforward process. Mm -hmm. But because of that, it's also everybody's journey is unique. Mm. Maybe we can go a little bit into that, and maybe I'll introduce like the concept of like what in psychology they call system one, system two, like the conscious part of our processes versus the unconscious part. Like we understand that uh, the great deal of uh, of what is going on is unconscious or subconscious is like a giant elephant. And then the conscious mind is like a small handler, handler trying to control the elephant, but no, the elephant is in charge and we just like create narratives to justify what the elephant wants to do, that kind of thing. Like yes. in, in the context of neurooptimal, how do we know if the, uh, if, the, you know, if the brain is choosing correctly or is that even a, a wrong concept, you know? Uh, well, correct, you can only judge something as correct from a certain perspective. So if on the outside I'm saying, oh, yes, that's correct, that's probably what I believe is correct. It doesn't mean that it actually is for that individual at that time. 
Mm. Um, you know, a lot of folks uh, who come uh, back when I was literally practicing as a conventional psychologist and therefore doing individual, group, and family psychotherapy with people, frequently you'd have someone come in and they say, you know, well, I'm, I'm angry, you know, a lot, and I, I want to get rid of that, I want to change that. And what was very useful for them to come to understand is you can't do an angerectomy. You can't just remove the anger, and you really wouldn't want to, because the question is, when are you getting angry? What's going on? Because sometimes being angry and using that energy is the most appropriate thing to do, the most useful. So nothing is inherently a problem. In some context, it's also a solution. So I, we've developed this system so that we have no judgments about what someone should or should not do. We have no judgment about how, how many sessions someone should or should not have. It's one of the, the most direct and profound ways to really respect the individual and the healing resource that is intrinsic to everyone. Right. So I don't know if that responded in the way that you were thinking <laughs> of the response. <laughs> but, well, that was certainly interesting, but I think um, the listener, well, this thought editor that asked this question, perhaps um, we could go a little bit about the, the office experience about Neuroptimal, so a sure. person can have an idea what, you know, what a per person goes through when they first put, you know, when they first enter the office of a trainer, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sure. Well... <clears throat> First off, uh, we, we do have a professional version of the software. We also have a personal trainer version. And it is something that families or individuals or schools or a number of settings get and use without a specific trainer being present to run the system. The, the Neurooptimal 3, which we released uh, just fairly recently uh, in March, uh, <clears throat> is actually even simpler than 2.0, which is a version that many people use for a number of years. Uh, and, and really, anybody can use the system. Uh, all you need to do is watch the video to see how to put the sensors on and hit the right button on the in the software, which is pretty obvious where it, where it is. And Bob's your uncle. It just works. So what classically or traditionally had been done, is you would go to a physical office someplace, which, of course, a lot, a lot of our uh, trainers use. They use that kind of a setup. Um, and you would go in, and you'd sit in a comfortable chair. Many people use recliners. And that way, once you're in the session, you can just really relax and even close your eyes. It doesn't matter if your eyes are open or closed, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> And you listen to music uh, through earbuds or a headset or the, the system speakers. And in the music, there will be little interruptions. Mm -hmm. Those little interruptions are actually the feedback event. And the interruptions help you to reorient back 
to what's going on presently. You know, if you think about, uh, say, fear responses or uh, trauma responses in situations, what is really occurring is someone is not probably in the present any longer if they're remembering the event. Mm -hmm. So they literally recreate the psychophysiology of the time when that, that prior trauma occurred and essentially re-traumatize themselves. Now, you may think that, well, gee, that's not very helpful, but the truth is, making the shift from being a victim of trauma to being a trauma survivor is huge. Because if that trauma response had not worked effectively, you probably wouldn't be here to talk about it. Mm. So, again, it's easy to look at things like anxiety or, or fear or sadness, depression, uh, trauma response as, as, as problems. We want to get rid of them. Well, yes and no. Those are resources, and they're, they're built into the human system for survival. It's, it's not that we somehow want to do that, remove that any more than we want to remove anger. So what happens in neurooptimal we don't, the, the system does not require and it doesn't uh, ask for and it really doesn't even support re-experiencing things from the past because that's probably not really useful unless it's a very pleasant memory. But even then, that takes away from what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. So one way of thinking what happens in response to the interrupts in the music and you know, we have music that we've created, but it can be any music you want. It can also be a movie. Uh, there are all kinds of things it can use. But the interrupts are kind of like what happens if you're walking in the woods by yourself and then you hear that big snap. Mm. And as soon as that happens, your body orients to that because it's, okay, what's going on? What's happening? How come there's a twig snap? I'm here alone. Right? Now... Mm. That can be a startle response, it can be completely benign, but your body, your central nervous system orients to it to see what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with the interrupts. It's, it's like the little strips along the sides of, of the highway that mm -hmm. remind you you're crossing over, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to stay on the road, that's a good reminder to come back and return the car into the lane. But if you're wanting to pull off to the side, it's a good reminder that you're actually doing that right now. Right. It's not that it tries to make you do one thing or the other. It's information. Mm -hmm. And are the interruptions, are they based on, uh, on specific filters? No. Um, it's a much more complex process than just that. Uh -huh. um, we do have 20 targets now in the third version. We had 60, 16 before, uh, and they are bilaterally symmetric because we looked at um, both sides of the central nervous system. It's a two-channel training system. Um, and we're looking really for the fluttering edges of those targets, not for specific changes in the targets. You know, the linear neurofeedback systems are 
generally oriented to looking for very specific changes, uh, an increase in intensity or a decrease in intensity in a particular filter band or, or an increase in power in terms of connectivity measures or whatever, whatever the metric is, it tends to be very specific. Um, some approaches use uh, quantified uh, normative databases that have uh, averages and standard deviations and z-scores. And the thought there is the more you approach uh, a normative z-score, the more normal the brain will be. Well, I mean, who wants to be normal? You know, if, mm. you're in a, if you're in a committed love relationship, do you ever find yourself going up to your, your partner and saying, you know, I just want an average kiss, just a normal one. <laughs> You know, it, it's it's kind of silly. So, you know, human life is not really organized around averages or or no. we talk about normal, but it really is more typical than normal. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's a very pleasant experience, folks, and you can have your eyes open or closed. You can sit up, you can lay down. You, I mean, we've we've had folks who take it on airplanes and oh. use the system while they're flying or on the train or, you know, it's, uh, it's really, it's really a lot of fun to mm. see how, how the system has been used in so many different settings. Will it be correct to say that it is like presenting a mirror to the unconscious brain or the part that is that's unaware? Actually, yeah, that's actually the most appropriate way to think about it. Conscious, conscious thought is actually, um, the slowest part of the mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the neurologic and neuropsychological studies have shown quite conclusively that you've already made the decision before you're aware of making the decision. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's just how the process works because it's, it takes time to form the conscious appreciation of what your body's already doing. And if, if you don't realize that, if you think, the opposite. Just try driving your car, consciously trying to influence the exact muscle amount that you tense your forearms or that you turn the wheel. Just try driving like that. Yeah. You're probably going to have a crash really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even walk like that. That's right. You can't. That's exactly right. You can't. And one of the reasons you can't is because walking is a relatively complex process that involves your foot, your ankle, your knee, your entire leg, your hip, actually your entire body responding to the contours of the ground as you go. Mm -hmm. So what happens in the context of Parkinson's when you start to see the shuffle and in later stages is that those movements have become stereotypical. Mm -hmm. They're no longer adaptive and huh. responsive to the environment. And that's because the, the resources are not there to respond in such a comprehensive, adaptive fashion. Mm -hmm. Neurooptimal has helped people with Parkinson's disease. Right? Well, we don't, we don't talk about conditions. I mean, I'm just bringing that up to illustrate what stereotypical movement is as opposed to resilient and flexible movement and activity. Uh, but we do have a, a user survey where a lot of our uh, users have 
reported their experience and the experience of many of their clients. Mm -hmm. uh, we have it, it's referencing over five million training hours. The last the last one we did, wow. so it's a pretty comprehensive, you know, uh, report on user experience. But we're not a medical treatment. Right. We're not a treatment of any kind. It's a form of training, and like aerobic exercise, it has a lot of effects. So if you, you if you really wanted to think about what's the most effective treatment for many forms of depression, it's aerobic exercise. That's been very clear, you know. But how many people know that? Most don't. Right. They they think it's time to get a medication, and many times it can, can be too. I don't don't I don't want to be misunderstood, but right. it's too it's very easy for all of us to forget that it's frequently lifestyle that's the big driver of problems, and mm -hmm. so what you do in your life, as opposed to the specifics of what genes you're born with or that kind of side of things is is really important especially as issues start to develop most things are made worse by how you handle stress mm -hmm. so same thing with sleep how you if you don't not, not getting effective sleep for you whatever that is for you then things are not going to work real well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is it possible for you to to mention some of the things that people have been saying in this survey um, I mean, I know you're not a medical device and, and, you know, it's not meant to treat anything, but I'm just curious about what sorts of things people are reporting. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one of our uh, longtime users um, has, has kind of coined a phrase that he likes to use quite often. And it, when people say, well, you know, who, who can benefit from this? Who, who is this good for? He says, anyone with a brain. <laughs> it's, it's good for every brain, you know. Um, yeah. Now, I frequently add the joke, you know, like, well, I don't know. There probably might be some politicians you exclude from that. <laughs> still, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's it's true. It's again, it's like you know, you you go into the elevator, and there's a real reason that many elevators have mirrors in them, mm. and it's That's to keep you preoccupied so you're not thinking the elevator's slow because of course as soon as you see the mirror you look into it to see what you look like and as soon as you see what you look like you may think "Ooh, gotta fix the hair or straighten the tie or you know whatever right so it serves both purposes well that's kind of what neurophimal is doing so it doesn't it you don't have to have a different kind of mirror to figure out that your tie isn't tied straight. You know, you don't have to have a different kind. You don't have to have a belt mirror to be able to see how your belt is in what right. you're wearing, right? So it's the same thing. It's it, any brain can benefit. Mm. It is interesting from our experience where we have like, like 52 pages of testimonials, you know, in the forum. Ah. <laughs> and <laughs> At least from my experience, you know, I always had uh, chronic persistent anxiety. Never took medication for it because I'm very, you mm. know, uh, right. well, that's the way I was raised up. You know, you just deal with it and that's it. And I also you felt like, it, yeah. yeah, I also like carried like a, I felt like I carried, you 
you know, like I was chained to a big rock and I was carrying that around all the time. So everything mm. took like a lot more effort <laughs> than it required. Sure. And I have the sure. sensation now that I, I have like more free will, like I can have more perspective mm -hmm. without being like crippled with anxiety or yeah. yeah, like more free will. It's like I have more cognitive resources, you know, I'm, I'm like mm -hmm. everything. It's like doesn't require so much effort like it did before. Right. And and of course, we continue to be living tissue. So what happens around us can have a large impact on mm -hmm. that. You know, so uh, you suddenly get fired and, you know, one of your relatives becomes critically and, and mortally ill and, 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 well, that's going to have an impact on you. But you have more resource available the more you do the training so that it becomes easier, like you're saying, to move through things instead of just react, instead of being overwhelmed by... Mm -hmm whatever feelings and inactivity you know it's uh, worry is a great example um sue frequently talks about dredging and mulling yes so you dredge up things from the past and you mull them over mm -hmm. and you know 98 percent of the time or whatever that you do that these are all thoughts you've already had like mm -hmm. millions of times so it's it, you know when do you know you've worried enough right <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no test. So it's always easy to worry because the best time to worry is when there's nothing to worry about because now you get to worry that you missed it. Yeah. Something is really wrong, you know? Right. But it's, it doesn't help. It doesn't do anything except waste energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Worry is not preparation. Yeah. Um, I think that's very true. And one thing that I've noticed after doing a number of sessions with uh, NeuroOptimal is that situations I was in that previously would bring up a lot of stress and anxiety and kind of put me into panic mode and just kind of scrambling around, I seem to have more resources there now to not be in that mode. So it's kind of like right. um, I'm not as reactive, I guess, is a good way of saying it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. And, and that is a fairly consistent uh, report from most users uh, and their clients. It, and it, it's interesting because the, it, it usually does come as, I'm not as reactive. Mm -hmm. And yeah. each person's kind of reactivity is different, perhaps. But it's that overall uh, increase in, in what you're calling, Gabby, free will. I think of it as, as, as choice options. You have oh. more choices available, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you see the choices more easily than, than if you could before. So right. it's likely that you're going to make more effective choices. Right. And, and that also goes back to the nonlinear dynamics of, the, of, of everything, you know, of how this works. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's, it's been interesting noticing over the last oh gosh what 40 years that this idea of what nonlinear dynamical systems are has has gradually started to be more and more introduced because up until that time up until really the the late 60s and into the 70s um, most everyone assumed 
that the majority of the world operated in linear fashions. Mm. And if you think about it, well, yeah, it, it kind of does. You know, you, uh, you hit something harder and you probably make a bigger dent. You know, I mean, in, in that sense, it makes some sense. You know, put in more effort, maybe more will happen. You know, put in less and probably less will happen, right? The problem is, it looks that way because we operate in fairly limited ways frequently. If you really look at the processes involved, virtually every real system is actually nonlinear. It's just that it's constrained in the range of operations. So if you think to something like bipolar affective disorder, rapid cycling, just the, the sort of classic idea that people have about that sort of rapid shift from the manic excitement to the deep depression. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you use the medications and they work, they don't really take that away. They just minimize the range and, and maximize the time between the cycling. Mm -hmm. So it's putting constraints on this nonlinear dynamical system, just like what you do when you tie up your boat at a dock, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't, it's, not, it's still gonna move. That's why you have to put fenders, you know, bumper fenders uh, between it and the dock and mm -hmm. potentially for other boats coming along because it's gonna move. You know, you can't just make it stationary completely, right? So everything really that's real is nonlinear, but we get to pretend most of the time that the world is Newtonian. You know, mm. Newtonian physics kind of work in, in on Earth. Get out in space and things are a little different. Right. That's right. So I could I could say, for example, that the problem uh, a problem with anxiety is like a constraint, mm -hmm. you know, in myself. Sure, sure. And and to say I'm an anxious person is already to put certain definitions on yourself. Mm. As opposed to noticing, oh, I'm feeling a little anxious right now. That's interesting. Yeah. It's totally different. And and what happens is is people frequently identify with whatever's going on. You know, I'm a trauma victim. Well, yes, you were victimized, but you've survived also. And the important part is you've survived. Hmm. So now let's talk about how to help you thrive. Right. Uh -huh. That's pretty you know, interesting. Victor Frankl... Uh, was mm. a psychiatrist who was in concentration camps, the Nazi concentration camps, and uh, man's for meaning in that. He said something really interesting that most people overlook when they talk about his work. He said, you know, there were people in the camps. First off, most of the deaths occurred randomly. You know, you mm. just happened to be the third person in line and they were counting down by threes that day or, you know, whatever it was. Most of it was random. But for those where that didn't happen and there were other processes going on, he said there was a minority, but there was a group that came through not showing what we would later call trauma response from that horrific experience. Hmm. And that's partly what he 
saw as the basis for understanding that it's the meaning of things, mm-hmm. not so much the things themselves that count. And the folks who came through without any particular signs of trauma response were those who lived a thoroughgoing spiritual orientation in which everything was part of lifting. Everything was part of their journey spiritually. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fascinating to me how many of these things just don't get noticed in, in literature. Same thing with Kubler-Ross. You know, it was never five steps. It was never a step program. It was five points that people bounce around until mm-hmm. they get to acceptance. Mm-hmm. And she always said, and there are a lot of people who just are in acceptance from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, it's the same thing. It's those who have a thoroughgoing spiritual orientation in which, okay, so I'm going to die. I get it. You know, mm. of course I am. No one here gets out alive. Mm. It's just now I know closer when that's going to be and what it's going to be like. Very interesting. I think it's a fascinating approach because, um, well, like uh, mainstream psychology and medicine, I suppose, it relies so much on diagnosis, you know, that mm-hmm. most people require. You have to have, like, okay, is this, you know, for example, is this type of neurofeedback is treatment or not? Why am I not being diagnosed? Or you have a training? Mm-hmm. It's very difficult mm-hmm. for them, you know, to understand. No, you know, you don't need a, a diagnosis or, you know, you can just, like, get hooked up to the neurooptimal system and get going. And like, right, right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It is. It's a very different approach in, in every regard. And it it not only does not require conscious effort to try to do something, we actually say, just forget about all that, get out of your way, because the unconscious learns much more rapidly, much more completely. Mm. The more you try to do it, the more you're just going to get in your way. Because actually, if you think about it, that's a big part of what goes on when you're dealing with things like anxiety. Mm. You know, you're feeling anxious and you're trying to figure out what to do so you don't feel anxious. Right. Well, that's kind of interesting because you didn't think about, you didn't notice anything like thinking about making yourself anxious. Right. Right. (laughs) So, you know, it's just, it's, it is kind of interesting how these things occur, you know, how these processes occur, but you know, if you got anxious in the past in certain situations because something occurred that you didn't like or you didn't enjoy, you know, like maybe getting an injection when you went for vaccinations or something like that or because you needed an antibiotic and it needed to be injected. Well, yeah, you, you go into that environment and you might go, ooh, I don't know if I really like this. I'm a little uncertain about what it's going to be like. No, you're actually pretty certain what it's going to be like. <laughs> You know, it's and and you you know everybody talks about I'm afraid of flying. The folks you know who identify with that. Well, no one is afraid of flying. Mm. They're afraid of crashing. <laughs> and and what they do when they're on the plane is they show themselves these you know horrific movies 
of the plane they're on right now crashing, and they're seeing that movie as if they're right in it instead of just watching it on the screen. Right. Well, yeah, your body's going to go. You know, I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> I'm, can't, can't, what can I do? You know. Um, so it's it's fascinating as you start to look at it as a as a computer programmer and someone who understands computer science. Uh, we always look for what I like to think of as production rules. How does something get produced? Mm. What do you have to do for the thing to occur? And so a lot of, of what gets done um, unawarefully for many people is the production rule that is, is in place to create stuff they don't enjoy or they don't like. You know, mm. so concretely the the kind of idea when you're when you're trying to help someone with addictive behavior particularly substance abuse one of the things you'll you'll uh, raise with them bring up with them is the idea of finding new places to go instead of going back to the old places where you have your old acquaintances and where it's much more likely for you to engage in the older behavior. Ah, that's interesting. So there, there are production rules in place. There are production sequences is another way to think about it. So, you know, the, the less likely you are to engage in those behaviors if you're not in that environment, particularly right. not one where you used to be. Same thing with smoking. You know, if you want to stop your, your cigarette smoking, pull the cigarettes backwards on your other hand, do a different pattern than what you're used to, and actually experience that first drag. You know, the 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 lungs, no matter how long you've done it, the lungs are not going to go. Oh God, that's really great. Thank you. Mm. Instead, it's like an it's like an itch that you scratch. You know, mm. it's like it, you're going to get another one. <laughs> it's, you're not going to get rid of the itches. You know, because you scratch that that one that one time. Um, right. So it's it's a lot about pattern interrupting, and and that's that's also what the the interrupts do in our neurofeedback. They're basically interrupting the production patterns that reproduce unuseful psychophysiological processes, and that's decided by the the person themselves. We don't tell them what what we happen to think is unuseful. I have hmm. no, I mean, to me, that's just not respecting the other person. Right. I, I have a question, actually, kind of related to what you were talking about. The So there, is, there does seem to be a certain percentage, well, maybe it's not even a percentage, but there do seem to be certain people who say that, you know, despite the fact that they've been doing the neurooptimal, they don't notice anything. I'm mm -hmm. not necessarily convinced that there's actually nothing happening. I think that's probably unlikely. So... Do, is there any kind of insight on that? Do you do you know why maybe certain people wouldn't really necessarily notice anything? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons, and it's actually part of the reason why we focus so much on the progress tracking tools, and mm -hmm. also on helping folks notice what we call the diffs, uh, D I F S, the duration, intensity, frequency, and shifts in what they experience. Most people, when they say, well, nothing's happening, what they mean is, I have condition X, and I still have condition X. Right. And it seems exactly the same to me. Now, it's, 
it's fascinating when that occurs, when someone says that, if you haven't done the diffs, if you haven't looked for, uh, okay, but, you know, how long does it last now? How often is it occurring? How strongly does it occur when it's occurring? Is, is there any change of any sort in that experience? Because any change begins the process of change. And although many of us believe that change, it's very difficult to change, actually, it's, it's impossible to stay the same unless you work really hard at it. <laughs> and if you don't believe that, just go talk to Cher, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's impossible to keep a nonlinear dynamical system doing exactly the same thing unless you severely constrain it. Mm. So, you know, when people say, well, every, nothing's changed. It's like, how do you do that? How do you know? You know, like what, I mean, seriously, how do you, nothing has changed? Well, what they really mean is nothing I care about. Now, frequently people will come in the context of a significant other it might be, you know, the husband who comes and the wife is in the background or vice versa, or both are coming. And we used to have the experience quite a lot, Stu and I, when we had active clinical practices back in the early days, where you know, the husband might come in and you go, you know, I, I, I don't think this is doing anything. And then the wife comes in and goes, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it because it's totally different now. <laughs> We're loving yeah. it. I love it, you know? So a lot of people are so focused on the identity of what they believe is wrong that it's, it's very difficult for them to let that go because frequently that is actually embedded in a much larger context of belief. So, you know, there, there's that uh, saying about, you know, life is tough and, and then you die. Uh, it's usually said a little more colloquially, but I don't want to use that <laughs> word here. You know? uh, but, you know, life's, life's difficult and then you die. Well, you know, if, you, if you've heard that enough growing up, that then becomes part of your unconscious self that you don't even think about. And what happens then when it suddenly gets easy? What do you think is about to happen? I'm going to die because <laughs> life's tough. Then you die, right? Now, it's, it's, it's really interesting because you'll have people who come in and they'll say things like, oh, I know something really terrible is about to happen. You say, well, how do you know that? Because it's been so good for so long, you can't, can't stay this way. <laughs> something bad has to happen. But you will never hear those people come in and say, you know, something wonderful is about to happen. You say, well, how do you know that? Because it's been so awful for so long. You can't stay like this. Now, you know, it's, it's funny when I put it that way. But if you think about it, the central nervous system, the psychophysiologic unity that we are, all of it, is organized around survival. It's mm -hmm. not organized around thriving. Mm -hmm. So as far, you know, it's, it's not for no reason that we have road rage. You know, rage was a very useful thing back in the early days of being humans, you know, mm -hmm. because it, you, you really did have to worry about all the predators, you know, and it's not for no reason that we look at things and frequently see faces. Well, because mm -hmm. if it's a face, if it's got eyes, it's got a mouth and it might eat us. 
you know, very few people look at trees and go, oh, God, that's scary. Because the tree probably isn't going to move, and it probably isn't going to do anything unless it falls over, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about the kinds of responses that we have that are fear-based, trying to protect us, trying to make sure we get through, whether it feels good or not, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's survival-oriented. That's why we have so many more negative affects than we do positive. Yeah. It's really okay. simple. And I wanted to go back a little bit about the interruptions. Um, there is a person sure. that uh, wants to know if there are clicks that are not audible or interruptions that are not audible uh, during neurooptimal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, you know, again, conscious processing is the, the slowest part of the thing. So when you're hearing things, it's already happened, essentially. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a timeliness in things. And it is the ones that you don't consciously detect that actually can be the most powerful. Huh. So, and, and that's very clear from a lot of contexts. Uh, if you look at subliminal processing and like some subliminal embedded messages, it, the, the research is very clear. And it's one of the reasons they're illegal. Uh, is because you can embed subliminal messages. They will not be seen, like mm. in movies or whatever, but they will have an effect. Mm. And so it's, it's not for no reason that companies embed their product in street scenes or whatever. They really want to make sure that you see it, but you're not paying direct attention to it. Mm. And that way it's like, oh, oh, I think I'll have a whatever because it was just in the movie that you saw, right. and you didn't even notice. So we can fall asleep while doing your optimal? Of course you can. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we think that, first off, one thing is most everyone in Western culture, certainly, is chronically overstressed and chronically underslept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... That your body goes to sleep when it can and it knows it's safe, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> you right. know? And, and, and if you're in uh, you know, neurofeedback office, you know, probably it's pretty safe there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So that's probably a good place to just, you know, and what you'll find is that frequently in sessions for folks, the amount of sleeping that they do changes over time in the session as their sleep renormalizes for them outside of the sessions. Hmm. And it's a, pretty, it's, it's a pretty common thing. We had someone who was one of our users, uh, still is, and, and uh, he ran a, a, a sleep lab and sleep program, treatment program. <clears throat> he introduced Neurooptimal into the this inpatient sleep program and reduce the time needed by 50%. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it, that doesn't mean that it's a treatment for sleep disorder. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that the way we organize our lives in, in Western culture actually sleep deprives us most of the time. 
Hmm. And as soon as we give the brain information about that and a safe, comfortable environment, it will go to sleep. Interesting. That's what it should do, right? And, of course, the, you're always hearing things. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why, you know, my, my wife sleeps with the earplugs in. I really don't like to do that because I want to hear what's going on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> If if a window gets shattered, like I want to know, you know? right? <laughs> so it just it's just the way I am, you yeah. know. It's uh, so you're you're active. Your brain is active. In fact, this is one of the things about sleep in particular. You know, everybody thinks, well, I'm asleep, as if it's this singular unitary state, and the whole brain is asleep. Well, no. In fact, different aspects of functioning are shifting all the time. And, you know, recent studies have confirmed that it does not make sense to think about a singular sleep state. It's a variety of processes like the waves on the ocean as they interact with the shore. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's some predictability to it, but it's always shifting. And it depends on how deep the water is, depends on the wind, depends on all kinds of things interacting it's not linear in words. Uh-huh. Right. So there are inaudible clicks. I, I think one of the IT guys wanted to know which was the percentage of them. We don't look at percentages. Mm-hmm. But, um, like in terms of feedback uh, being given, in terms of the number of interruptions, well, that's not even up. A right approach. Right. If we're talking right. in a linear, <laughs> the linear system, it's, that's the, that's 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 linearizing it. By the way, yeah, that's the that's very interesting because uh, as we I was reading for this show, I said like I think all the difficulties in understanding this process and all the questions are because we mm-hmm. think in linear terms. That's so yeah, <laughs> embedded. Absolutely. <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. In fact, that's. One of the hardest things for people who, particularly those coming from a linear neurofeedback perspective, for them to understand is there aren't targets like they have. We're not looking at, you know, a percent time above threshold or percent time below threshold or percent of movement within a frequency range or none of that is what's relevant. And and without those kinds of metrics, they don't have any conceptual framework where they can say, well, okay, if it's not that, you know, what is it? Help me understand. I, I remember, gosh, when I would present and a number of the, the others in the field would say, you know, I really don't understand how you're doing what you do. And I say, thank you for confirming it is actually unique. I get that. <laughs> I, I get it. You don't understand it. I under, I understand that. Well, explain it to me. Uh, I can explain it to you in general, but mm-hmm. if you don't understand the mathematics, it won't make any sense. Right. And, and I'm not going to give you the specifics of the mathematics. So. Oh, sorry. I was just. Go, go ahead. Whoever. Go ahead, Gabby. I was just going to ask, uh, in terms of what we know about how the human ear works, 
and, mm -hmm. uh, and it's still very linear, I think. Um, would a deaf person will be able to use NeuroOptimal? Yes. Uh, first off, there are degrees of deafness and types of deafness. So, the, you know, the question is, is it totally deaf? Is, uh, were they congenitally born deaf? Uh, you know, is it bone conduction issues? I mean, there, there are just so many different variables. Mm -hmm. But many times what can work is people respond to the vibrations. So you can put the speaker, if they're using speakers, you can put speakers right next to their skin, and they'll feel changes in the music, including the interrupts. Hmm. So that has been done. Wow. It's the process of the interrupts because they're discrepant from what goes on in music, which is usually continuing. There's usually some overall flow and, and, and very few pure silences. So the interrupts stand out as vibration even. Mm -hmm. I understand. I was just going to ask, are, are the changes that people notice, you know, people are having some positive changes, are these permanent? Well, you're, you're living tissue. So, right. you know, what, what in your life is really permanent if you think about it? Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm now 63, just, <laughs> just turned that recently, actually. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. Like, Hair isn't permanent, right? <laughs> you know, and and it migrates. I mean, how come it's not where I want it to be, but it's places where I don't want it to be? You know, uh, so I mean, it's you know, what is continuing in your life ever? Now, that having been said, that's just to contextualize. You know, it's like learning to ride a bicycle. Mm. You know, if you haven't ridden a bike for for a decade. It may take you a little while to get back comfortable, but it's mm. not going to take you as long as it took to originally learn how to ride the bike. Right. It's it's in there somewhere, you know, and you may fall a couple of times or whatever, but you'll you'll get it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. I was I guess it was kind of a related question: is it, is neurooptimal something that people kind of do for a limited period of time, and then they kind of get what they can get out of it, and then don't go back to it, or is it the kind of thing that you would revisit again in the future? I think that depends on availability, depends on what your motivation um, was to, to begin or what you've noticed after. Uh, we have people, uh, uh, there's a, two centers I'm thinking of right now who are in uh, the Netherlands, just wonderful ladies, and, and both have been using the system since 2003, something like that. And they still use it a lot for themselves. I mm. mean, and obviously for, for clients as well. Uh, but they also, you know, they and many other trainers also have collections of rental equipment. So like a rental fleet and they will rent systems out to families or, you know, to others. Um, and particularly when they're at a large distance away. So, uh, one of our representatives uh, and instructors down in Australia, that's a large part of what he does because the mm. distances are just so huge Right. that uh, if, if he didn't do that, it, there are a lot of people who wouldn't be able to get any of the service. So 
what happens is sometimes people will rent a system or buy a system or go to a trainer and they may be for um you know seeing that person for a couple of months or they mm -hmm. may come and and just see for a certain number of sessions or until they go okay i think i think i'm in good nick here i think i'm okay and then later on something comes up in their life and they say you know I, you know, I think it'd be good. Maybe I'll go back and have some more sessions. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're really interested in facilitating their creativity ongoingly. And so they just get a system and they use it a lot. Mm. I mean, it, you know, we have no particular commitment to saying, well, here's how many sessions. That would be right. like trying to tell the brain what to do. And we'll say, you know, if, if you want a session, if it seems that way, then have one. Mm. You know, if it's useful, go for it. You know, right. but a lot of people think, well, if one session is good, then a million have to be better, and they <laughs> want to train, you know, all all day long for several weeks, and and it's it's like that old Zen story about you know the guy who goes to the the Zen monastery and he uh, he approaches the abbot. He says, uh, look, if I train, you know, all the time, if I just work really hard, you know, how long will it take me to become enlightened? And, and Master looks at him and says, 10 years. He says, okay, look, I'll, I'll skip meals. I'll cut down my sleep. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll work even harder. 20 years. Huh. <laughs> right? And it's, it's kind of the same thing. In, in the East, that's known as gaining mind. You know, if, if you come into it with gaining mind, then you're kind of missing the point. Mm. Uh, if you're, you know, trying to speed it up, well, everybody's journey is everybody's journey. It's their individual process. And for me, I'd far rather that, you know, so I, like when my eldest daughter was learning to walk, you know, I'm not going to say to her, no, 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 don't do that. You know, stand up, just stand up. Well, no, that's her process. You know, I'm going to respect that. Because then it also lets her know that I trust that process for her. I don't have to step in for that. Other times, of course you do. You know, uh, they're going to fall and, and hit the edge of a table. Well, of course you're going to step in and, and take care of that, you know. Uh, but most of the time where we step in and think we're helping, we're actually making it worse. There's a Chinese proverb about the monkey thinking himself kindly and wise safely tucked the fish back up the tree. <laughs> you know, you, you pull the fish out of the, the river to save it by putting it up in the tree where the monkey feels safe. You think you know what they what's good for them and you end up killing them, you know? So people, people vary quite a bit. But we find that over time, the longer folks make use of the system, whatever that schedule that they choose to use, you know, they make once a week, they may do once every other week, they may do, you know, haphazardly in terms of time between three times a month or, you know, eight times a month or whatever, that the longer somebody does that, the longer the effects will persist between mm -hmm. sessions. So kind of the, the typical thing is people will come and they'll do, you know, a, a set, to use that term, they'll just do a number of sessions kind of closer together, 
Mm-hmm. And what they'll find is that they can start to space out the time between the, the ending sessions as the, the number comes to the end of the, the, uh, the sequence they're going to do, uh, end up doing. Because they find they don't, they don't need kind of the booster effect as much. And soon it'll be, you know, a week between sessions. Then it'll be two weeks. Then it'll be a month. Then it might be three or four months. Then it might be a year, assuming that, you know, no major stressors happen uh, in their life. Some people, some people have had a little bit of troubleshooting. Um, I don't know. If there are some speculations about what could be going on, for example, um, some might need uh, a little bit of, oh, they sleep less, for example, or they have a mild headache mm-hmm. here and there. Mm-hmm. What could be happening here? Well, it's you need to remember, first off, not a treatment. So mm-hmm. it is not a linear, predictable process. But what we have found is that whatever emerges... Is, some, is, is not new for that person. You know, it's something that has occurred in the past, and it usually it, it indicates that the system is kind of uh, renormalizing itself. And so it's like as you do that walking and you're adjusting to this new terrain, you know, you can walk very quickly in a carpeted hall, try to do that at the side of a mountain, and things go sideways pretty quickly. You know, so... It's easy to say, well, both of those are ways of, of moving, so how come one is more difficult? Well, it's a different terrain, and you have to adapt to that. So as as people do the training, remember I said we're based on Carl Pribram's holographic model of the brain and how it works, and that involves perception and memory as well as consciousness. Your perceptions will change, too. And your perceptions of what's possible will change. So sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm feeling more whatever. And as we talk about it, what's actually happening is they're noticing just how much it really had been going on, but they had numbed themselves to how much it was going on. Mm-hmm. So is there actually more? No. It's actually the same, or it could even be less, but they're noticing it more now because they're more sensitive to it. Well, okay, there's a change. That's the beginning of the change process. And the more you notice it, the more you can take action. You know, it's it's easier to clean up small messes than big messes. So the sooner you see the mess, the easier it is to deal with it. Right? Yeah, so that's the perception. And then your sense of who you are in the world starts to change. Uh, um, one of our trainers coined the phrase, it's, it's transformation through the rearview mirror. Because you kind of have to look back and go, oh, yeah, that's, wow, that's where I was before. I'm not there anymore. It's different. Hmm. Um, I had this one woman who was probably the most extreme example of this, and I'll, I'll call her Mary. But she was extremely bridge-phobic. She just she the only way she could go across like a, a high level suspension bridge was she had to be in the back seat of the car with the blindfold on and mm-hmm. earplugs in and have somebody else drive her because she's just terrified. Now at that time Sue and I lived in Long Island, 
And if you mm-hmm. weren't on Long Island, that meant you had to come across a bridge or you had to take the ferry or something. Right. So anyway, she came for that. That was the identified you know, purpose of coming. And so we had the office set up there and we had a little reception area and then Sue had sort of one side of, of an office. She had an office on one side of the house. We had it in our house and I kind of had the other side of the house set up as an office. Anyway, I would walk into the uh, the waiting room and I'd see Mary there and I'd, you know, see her husband, right? And so anyways, at the fifth session, that instead of really you know, going out there that much. I just opened the door and, and peeked, and it looked like her husband wasn't there. And I said, oh, you know, Mary, where's your, where's your husband? And she said, oh, he didn't come here again today. What, didn't come again? What do you mean? Oh, I drove myself the last two times. Huh. Wow. <laughs> I kind of looked at her and I said, do you remember why you came originally? <laughs> and she went, oh, my God, that's right. Uh-huh. I completely forgotten because it's so different. <laughs> that's amazing. God, it's hard to believe that. I, you know, and, and that's the extreme, but that's not unusual. You know, Sue, Sue had a very similar experience in the very beginning when we first together. Uh, I was kind of already an expert in the field in presenting. This was back in the five-phase days. And uh, she is a migrainer. And back in the day, she had to take massive amounts of medications each and serious meds every day just as a standard thing. And still she was in pain most of the time. And then there was, of course, the, the additional ones that she would take. And at one point, oh, I don't know, it's about... Six weeks later, she stopped and she said, you know, I just noticed I'm not even carrying the emergency meds with me anymore. I don't even think, and I'm not taking the morning stuff either. I hadn't even noticed because it just faded away. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of what happens. And so I think sometimes when people say, well, nothing's changing, there's some of that going on. You know, mm. it's like that it, things are different, but they're different in a way that the person can't yet recognize. Mm. And it can also be that they're that they're engaging in behaviors or they're in situations where they're they're still having that abiding stress. Mm. You know, and or they're they're still uh, you know abusing their bodies in some way with substances or whatever. Um, and of course, as we get older, you have to be much more creative in how you abuse yourself. <laughs> as <it says. laughs> anyway, yeah. well, I think that's pretty fascinating. And to be quite honest, I think the people that have reported nothing, um, mm-hmm. it seems that other people have noticed something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's true. I think I. I have yet to see a situation where someone had significant others around and they all agreed that absolutely nothing changed. Now, the other place where you can see that is uh, frequently with families who bring children and they, they see the child as the identified patient, as the phrase goes. They see the child as having the problem. Mm. And if the problem doesn't change the way the parent thinks it should, they can say, well, this isn't working. 
And mm-hmm. so what they'll find out is that, you know, well, he's arguing with me more. Oh, okay. So he's standing up to you. I get it. Well, he shouldn't do that. Oh, well, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I understand. But, you know, it's like this is change and change happens, you know. Um, so so it, it does get interesting at times. And what we recommend and, and what a lot of our um, trainers recommend is that the entire family trains. Because mm. the more the parents and the other family members are feeling more capable, more resilient, more flexible, the less reactive they will be and the less reactive that the, quote, identified patient will become also. Mm. That's fascinating. We do have a trainer participating in our forum. Uh, it seems that he huh. has been uh, in Eruptimal since pretty much the early days. Well, his username is Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was telling us that um, uh, you guys over there were doing like Eruptimal in groups and doing like uh, kind of like a group experience. Can you share a little bit oh, about yes. that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, one of the things that happened over time as we were developing what became Neuroptimal uh, is we would go to conferences. And unlike the rest of our colleagues, we would do basically blind sessions on people who came up to us. You know, no assessment, no nothing. Um, you know, just go ahead and run the software. Because even in the early days, it was incredibly safe and gentle and and all of that and it it struck our colleagues as quite you know like how how can you do that you have to assess the person so no i don't I don't you'd see it right here in fact many of our colleagues competitors came and secretly said look i've got a headache let me sit down and session okay <laughs> it's kind of cute anyway as as we did that it started to become clear that a lot of our trainers in the sort of the emerging community of users uh, were very interested in having additional experiences like group experiences and all of that. So Sue and I started a series of events that we referred to as the immersives. And what we would do, we, we rented a basically a, a, a hotel that was here where we were in Victoria. And we kind of took the place over for a week, and people would fly in. And it was basically a week-long thing. And it started out with a trainer and a client training all at the same time. And so you had two sessions in the morning, one where you were a trainer, one where you were a client. And then you had two sessions in the afternoon, same kind of idea, one where you were a trainer, one where you were a client. And we had people shift around, you know, so it wasn't just the same pair switching seats. Everybody got basically a chance to train more or less with everybody. Now, as the group got huge, that was tougher. But uh, in any event, what we started to notice, because we had little debriefing sessions, you know, in between them. And we would kind of talk about, like, what happened or, you know, what did you notice, whatever. And what became very clear was that frequently... So somebody, after they'd been, you know, whichever side of the equation they were in the experience, they'd say, you know, it's really weird, but I had this image in my head. And somebody from across the room would go, yeah, I did too. And then another person's like, well, yeah, I had the same thing. And it's like, 
I was the client, and the other one goes, uh, I don't even remember. Was I the client or the trainer? You know, and so it was. It was very clear that there, there was a, a group interaction that was happening, because everybody was getting their own separate feedback. Now, as we did that, there, two sort of interesting things occurred historically. One of the very first immersives that we did, uh, Jeff Bova came to, and Jeff is the, the he, at that at immersive he came up to me was like on the first day, and he said, "Look, uh, this is amazing." Uh, would you mind if I composed some music to go along with it to express what my experience is? Now, Jeff is a multi-platinum, multi-Grammy, you know, musician, producer, all of that. I mean, he's worked with everybody. Uh, at one point, he was he was uh, in Herbie Hancock's uh, oh. band at the time of Rocket and you know, all kinds of things. Anyway, just, and it's like, would I mind? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, it's like amazing. Anyway, the music that we use and that we used once he created the first one is the default music. Mm. So with no three, we have a whole new music, which is actually composed of six separate tracks. And one of the real joys of my life was he and I had, discussed at that same first meeting that at some point here's what we'd both like the music to become and so this is really the music that we had always kind of wanted and i actually got to work with him in his studio uh dealing with and and adding to uh several of the tracks so that wow. was just a, it was so it really was and anyway, that's one thing that happened but the other thing that happened I started thinking, you know, this is really interesting. So, so there are these group interactions going. And as we started, look, as I would walk around and see what was going on in the screens, I noticed that there was a synchronicity occurring frequently with what mm. you see on the screen. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try an experiment here. And what I came up with was what we called the star hookup because of kind of what it looked like when it was done. But essentially what happened was we had one channel from one system connected on, on one side of a person, and the person next to them had that same system's other channel connected to one of their sites. And we went cross-connecting like that all the way around the circle of, of people who were getting trained. And we called it the star hookup. So it was really, it was true interpersonal feedback because, you know, whose, whose brain was actually triggering the interrupts that were heard, <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah. Now, the real fascinating thing was it worked. Huh. Wow. You know, and so it became a thing that was kind of the center point for quite a while of, of the immersive for the ones that we did. And ultimately, of course, it got to the place where everybody could train at the same time because it was it was simple enough to to run that way that you didn't need to have a separate trainer outside. So it was twice then the amount of hookups uh, and training time and all of that. We, we discontinued those uh, after a couple of years, several years. I don't remember exactly how long, uh, but several of our Trainers have continued them in various locations. So there have been uh, versions of it done in the Netherlands. There have been versions of it done in the U.S. in various locations. Uh, 
there have been versions of it done in Japan, um, just mm. a number of locations. Oh, excuse me. So, um, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. And pointing to the fact that what's really underlying what occurs in our form of neurofeedback anyways is one of the nonlinear dynamical control processes known as synchronization through chaos. And that that really is that is the real explanation for what everyone thinks of as uh, you know the clocks synchronizing on the wall. You take two nonlinear dynamical systems and you put them in, in in connection with each other so they can share information because you do that with the clocks on a wall and the wall vibrates a bit, right? Mm. And what will happen is the two pendulums of the clock, if it, the pendulum clocks, will synchronize, but to a different rhythm than either of them had separately. Mm. Now, if you think about it, when you go to a traditional talk therapist, that's actually what happens. Mm. You know, you guys start talking in the same way. Either the client synchronizes more to the, the therapist, or the therapist synchronizes more to the client, or it's 50-50, whatever. But they develop a shared language. And if you follow them psychophysiologically when they're together, they're starting to have very similar psychophysiologies over time. So it's really, we think it's the content that's the important part. I don't think that's really the case. I think it's, I think it's the synchronization through chaos. And you just hang out a while together. You know, if you're Again, to go back to that committed relationship situation, you know, you synchronize together in some way. I mean, you know, Wednesday night, uh, you know, the guy may go out and play poker and Wednesday night, you know, she has uh, her girlfriends over and they play bridge or whatever. You know, you, you do stuff at kind of the same time or you don't stay together. Mm. So it's fascinating. You so when, try that. <laughs> <laughs> well, whenever I would do couples therapy, everybody always wanted to come in and talk about the problems, right? You know, whatever they were. And I said, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. But what I, I want to know is, how did you guys decide to get together? You know, at some point, you know, you looked at each other and you said, you know, hey, let's hang out. Let's, you know, and, and they'll start talking about the first times that they went on a date or the, the place they used to go to, you know. And as they do that, they will start to really synchronize to that. If there's if they don't, then it's probably too far gone for things to really get salvaged because mm. they've, whatever's happened. Uh, but at, at the end of some of those discussions, I would say, okay, look, when you first got together, you used to go to this little you know, roadside place and you'd go and you'd hang out and you'd have your coffee and, you know, you would get the Danish and you would get the, you know, the bagel or whatever. Um, what do you think would happen if you started doing it again? And they're like, oh my God, we haven't done that for years. Okay, why don't you try it, see what, what happens. As you do things together that created the relationship, it's highly likely that you're going to recreate the relationship. Hmm. Interesting. So it's it's very similar. We did we did group stuff. We we uh, some of our trainers uh, use one system on uh, you know a mother and a daughter in the same time, so one channel apiece. Some use two systems at the same time. Some do the cross hookup, 
when it's two systems and two people or three people and three systems, you know, whatever. Uh, so that has persisted in, in a lot of uh, uh, situations. But yeah, group, group experiences. Um, it's, we still, we just had our, our conference. Uh, we just finished it in Montreal. It's, it's actually referenced up on the web, our website. Um, but we had 200 people in the room and we had 50 plus uh, with streaming, live streaming access around the world. And we just had a ball. I mean, we just really had a wonderful time. And someone who came who's a motivational speaker came up to me at the end of the time and said, you know, I really have never seen a group that's as passionate and compassionate and connected as you guys are. This wow. is just amazing, you know. And, and so that community that sense of community and group is is really important to Sue and I. I mean, that's it. We think of we think of our company as being family, and incidentally, there's family relationships amongst just everybody in the company. It was not intense that way. It's just what's happened, you know. <laughs> no, uh, it's been funny like that. Um, and we think of the community of users as the family. You know, we usually use the, the, the word community, but we see it much more as a family. And in fact, our our current director of education, uh, wonderful woman, Lise DeLong, Dr. Lise DeLong, who I've known over 20-some years, um, was uh, helped her through dissertation and, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, for, for years, she would come up to me and to Sue and she'd go, can't you guys just adopt me? <laughs> that would be so, you know, she's such a sweetheart. She really is. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> she's now our director of education, right? <laughs> and and it's like, okay, so now you're part of the family. That's great, you know. And, and her husband helps with uh, some of the configurations and shipping uh, that we do. You know, it's just that's how it's all evolved over time. It's just been organic, and Sue and I ride the serendipity that occurs, you know, we don't block it. Hmm. Yeah, so group stuff, yes, and families and all kinds of cool stuff. Well, I think you both will be pleased to know that, yes, we, several of us own uh, the equipment and we have yes. them in, in communities and, yes, it had brought a lot of us together so we can do it. <laughs> <That's very good. laughs> well, it's also important that users know about each other and have a means to connect with each other. So we now have our um, Neuroptimal 3 past support group on Facebook. So oh, yeah. anyone who's a member of the past support process has instant 24-7 access to basically all the information that they're going to need to run the system and, and deal with things when things seem to go sideways or, or whatever in terms of the operation of their systems. So it's, it's been a very important resource. And what I found so wonderful in that particular process is that basically the group is self-supporting now. Um, you know, I go in and I may and I provide answers, and our technical staff does, and you know, just about everybody from the Zengar team contributes in some way. But unlike how resources used to be organized for us, 
it's it's frequently other users who are giving the direct support to you know their their colleagues uh, around the world. Yeah, hmm. I've I've checked those um, since the last week or two. I was quite impressed. There's a lot of activity going on there. Yes. And yes. <laughs> a lot of support and also a lot of experience, you know, and so many types of clients. Let's not say diagnosis, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, there's some pretty amazing stuff going on here, you know. Yes, there is, and and that's that's part of the fun for for Sue and I. You know, uh, it's uh, it, it's really been a difficult long but also immensely fun and immensely rewarding uh, journey that Sue and I have been through to bring this out the way we have. It's just not, not what we anticipated when we first started the process <laughs> at all, but you know, we couldn't be happier about how it's gone. Oh, I'm glad That's to great. hear that. I would I would imagine that there was a lot of troubleshooting at the beginning and resistance from the neurofeedback community, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I was the I was the I was the bad boy in that group. Um, <laughs> you know, because, um, you know I, I challenged everything else, and it wasn't that I was trying to be challenging. It's just you know I challenged. I think one of the the touching moments I had in that community. Because um, there are a lot of really wonderful, dedicated folks there, you know. Um, but uh, this one gentleman who who I'd known for a very long time, and uh, uh, a trainer, he's you know developed particular protocols to do certain things, and he and his wife were a partnership, um, and he was a he was a Marine, U.S. Marine. Um, so for his wedding, of course, it was full dress and, and all of that, full dress uniform. But just a really, you know, great guy. And he asked me to be on a panel with, uh, he was on the panel and then another uh, sort of prominent figure in the field <clears throat> was on the panel. And and each of us had different approaches, but the, the gentleman I'm, talking about and the other person were much more similar in that they were both linear approaches and limited targeting and that sort of thing. Anyway, when he introduced me, he said, you know, I have to tell you that I don't do what Val does. I don't understand what he does. I have <laughs> no idea how he gets the results that he gets and how his people do. But you need to listen to him because he does get those results, and that means it's important. And it was wow. like, wow, thank you very much. That's you know that's awesome. So, you know, it, moments like that made a difference. And of course, you know, presenting for so long with Carl Primrum, in the end, I didn't really care what anybody else thought. You know, right. he, he got it. <laughs> he and I presented together. Um, that's good enough for me, you know. Wow. There are several books that he wrote and papers. Do you recommend something specific for people who want to know more about um, about nonlinear dynamics? Yeah, he, he he will not talk as much about nonlinear dynamics as some others do. 
uh, but he will talk about the the joint time frequency analysis portion of of what he was using and and what uh, it's a version of what we used as well. Um, but there there are a number of them, and it really depends how, how deep you want to go into his stuff. Uh, he he put out a last ebook. And I don't remember how long ago it was, but it's widely available through Amazon and that sort of thing. And it's called The Form Within. And The Form Within kind of encapsulates his entire career. And for me, as I read it, it is like eerily reminiscent of the kinds of discussions that he and I had. Uh, Towards the end of his life, uh, he and I had planned to get together and do some kind of a, you know, guided discussion about things. And then, unfortunately, uh, he died of cancer, but it, it progressed to the point that that just was not possible. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that I regret that we weren't able to do, but it would have been just wonderful. But the form within covers a lot of that, and it, it really does a very good job of helping to uh, move people to the place where they can kind of begin to understand stuff. Of course, there's also the classic on brain and perception, which was written a long time ago. Um, one of the things that I, I really liked was one of the, the books that we actually used back in my under, undergraduate uh, psychology program back in the early 70s. And it was something he wrote with uh, two other people, rather prominent folks in their own right, called um, Plans and the Structure of Behavior. And it's just very interesting because of when it was written and some of the ideas and seeing how that has come back and become the basis of a lot of other things going on. And I suspect many people don't even know that, don't even know that history. Mm -hmm. So that's that stuff from from Carl that I think and and a lot of his papers there were just I couldn't even tell you how many papers there are if you look online uh, mm -hmm. it's got to be over uh, it's just the the career that he had and the things he wrote and the presentations he did it was just phenomenal amount of material. Uh, I might be mistaken, but I think he might have written about parapsychology actually, you know, or made studies. To yes, so he, he kind of covered the waterfront. Yeah, hmm. interesting. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's something that um, when the co-founders of our associated website, uh, Arkadius Jashik, mm -hmm. told me, like you know, we could. <laughs> yeah. I was preparing for this show. I said, okay, yes. I think uh, pre-rem is the key word here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> pre-rem, pre-rem, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We yeah. do think about him, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, uh, well, I know you're very busy. I don't want to steal your time more. I, I mean, we could keep going, you know, <laughs> for hours. Do, do you have a, a question there that maybe I left out that is like, oh, don't forget that question or anything? <laughs> well, there was one little question, maybe, maybe just a quick answer to it. There was one question about... Um, ch uh, children versus adults, and that whether you know children are, are apparently kind of more plastic in their brain and kind of. So the question was just: Are, are is it more effective on children than 
than on adults. Well, you know, if you think about it, when you're asking a more question, you're basically linearizing it. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, and, and then we've got to come up with a metric for effectiveness, whatever that means, right? So to me, that just doesn't make sense to think about it that way. And, right. you know, I'm not, I'm not even sure that I would agree uh, with the overall premise that children's brains are more plastic. Right. If you're talking about neuroplasticity, you know, it, it was not long ago where neurology and medical science was saying, no, 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 you, you know, after this age, no more new neurons, no more new brain tissue, and mm -hmm. you got it or you don't, and you just start losing after that. Right. You know, I mean, not only do we know now, and we have for quite a while, that that's just not true, that's been known for centuries. Huh. It's been talked about differently in different cultures, but... You know, the idea that somehow we're a clock and we just start winding down doesn't really fit what's going on, especially not when it comes to the brain and learning and all of that. So, you know, I really, more or less effective, I, I don't know how to measure that. Right. And for me, as a, as a programmer, as a, a former neuropsychologist, as a, a database management person i know if i can't measure it i can't do a lot with it right does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah no i'm i'm very open to the idea that um we don't lose any of our plasticity as we age <laughs> <laughs> or we hope not you know yeah, exactly we sure hope not <laughs> well that's very <laughs> well, so I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed our summer solstice special. <laughs> 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 and um, if anybody wants to learn more, um, you can go at neurooptimal.com and yeah. see if there's a trainer close to you or more information, articles, you know, links here and there. I think that's the most important resource for people, right? Yes, yes. That's a very good resource. And, and from there, it will point you in other directions. So lots of resource out there. That's the place to start. Great. Oh, sounds good. Thank you very much, Dr. Val, for being yes, with us. thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Uh, I really enjoy these kinds of things. So I, I have fun and uh, hope it was useful. Very much um, so. I'm sure it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, goodbye, everybody, and see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.